Welcome to Four Questions. Now, workers who make our jeans, t-shirts and smartphones often labour in really terrible conditions. Poverty wages, intimidation, harassment, forced labour and little way to speak out to push for better working conditions. That's pretty much the broad consensus of research on global supply chains. But what is less known and more contested is what we can do about it. How can we improve labour standards? And what's the big obstacle? Now, some people, including me, uh, kind of blame the big global evil multinational companies scouring the world for low prices, sourcing from wherever the costs are lower with short-term contracts, constant churning, keeping suppliers on their toes. Um, and that fuels labour repression, or so some people might argue, like me. But there's this new paper that I'm super curious about. And this new paper by Matt Amengwell and Greg Disselhorst argues that actually buyers aren't entirely at fault here. They're not the real culprits because they do try to improve labour standards, but they're impeded by several hurdles. In particular, their difficulty to source more at a greater volume from factories that do improve labour standards. So, I am super overjoyed that Matt Amengel, who's Associate Professor in International Business at the University of Oxford, welcome! Um, so tell me, do buyers really try to improve labour standards? So I think that um, the first thing I would say is you have to disaggregate buyers. Okay. Um, so who in the organisation are you talking about? And I think that um, activists organizations have created enough pressure on on those firms that have valuable brands and are susceptible to activist campaigns mm. that they have at least created some internal pocket in their organization of people whose job it is to mitigate that risk and and those people often don't necessarily have power mm. in sourcing decisions but they could mm. um, and i think that if we think that the uh, behavior of multinational buyers is a root cause that's driving a lot of the um, poor labor conditions in the world. We've got to figure out how to change that behavior. And this is going to be at least one mechanism that we're going to be building upon um, those people in the companies who are whose job it is to, to, to look after these issues, among many other um, hopefully more robust policy measures. Uh, but there's always going to have to be some sort of shift in those companies' behavior in order to make this happen. And, and sort of the question of this paper was um, what might enable or, or inhibit that shift from occurring? So, is that a yeah. reasonable way of... No, I'm with you. So tell me, in a reputation-conscious company, what might a CSR officer do to try to improve labor standards? How, how do they go about that? Well, so I guess... The way I think about this is, is, is if we think about the trajectory of what's happened in sort of the last 25 years, mm. um, there was a, a, a shift in activist campaigns in the 1990s mm. towards targeting firms. Yes. Um, and we can discuss whether or not that was a good idea or a mm. bad idea, mm. but it was a tactical shift that, mm. that took mm. place. Um, during the Clinton administration, the, the apparel industry partnership, I believe it was called, was created that morphed into the FLA. And there was this infrastructure put into place. And that initial infrastructure was about auditing and monitoring with this idea that auditing and monitoring would somehow improve working conditions. And I think the first r r round of, of criticism about the way that 
that whole regime functioned, mm -hmm. pointed out that regulatory programs in general are never really just monitoring programs. If we look at what the way state regulation works, when it works well, if we look at any kind of regulatory program, there's some kind of capacity building component, there's some persuasion that mm -hmm. occurs, mm -hmm. and we kind of know this, is, mm -hmm. but it wasn't taken fully into account in the so private regulation regime. it wasn't just regimes. collecting information, monitoring compliance within factories, it was also problem solving, remediation work, helping factories to actually improve labor standards. Yes, within a, I would say within a narrow set of labor yes, standards. Yes, okay? yes. So um, in some of the early work that I've done and that other people have done, um, when you talk with the people from multinational companies who go to factories and when you talk to factory management about what that interaction mm -hmm. is like, mm -hmm. it will often be things like pointing out, no, you have to change your fire escape here or you need to, here's, you have to change your shifts in order to deal with overtime issues, that there is this sort of constructive mm -hmm. root cause analysis. And that came up in the late 2000s throughout the 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 industry i think mm. and sort of some mm. of the better players um and then it kind of was exhausted to pick a term in that people didn't necessarily see the the effects that they that right. they wanted and i think that then one question that came out of it was that well if brands are doing this work they're giving uh factories these standards and maybe they're helping them comply with some of the standards um but then their sourcing departments are saying i want it faster cheaper um, and so on that they're basically pushing against each other so this paper actually initially... I'll just I'll just add on to that for for listeners who might not follow me so this is just a add-on this is like decoupling so you might have these wonderful committed CSR people who are like making all these efforts to find out what's going on in the factory work out iteratively with uh, manufacturers how they can uh, improve things and the factory might be getting all that pressure, all that information said, you need to do better, you need to do better, be more ethical, pay your workers more. But at the same time, they're hearing from procurement, how can you do this? At, you know, what's your lowest possible cost? And if you don't get that lowest possible cost, we'll go to this other person down the road. And can you please get it done in six months? Then six months later, they might not get the contract. So there's little incentive to invest in all that remediation work. So yes, so that's that's exactly yeah. right. And I think so. Then the 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 genesis of this paper mm. came out of a discussion that Greg and I had with someone who used to be at the Fair Labor Association, mm. and and uh, different uh, multi-stakeholder organizations mm. were trying to then put into place standards around this this decoupled purchasing behavior oh, right, so okay. how do we actually create mm. what good practices are there mm. and how do we then regulate buying firms in terms mm. of those practices in order to create that alignment and the FLA had put in those standards and I think the ETI is doing this as well the ETI's recently report talks about sort of business models and there was this general recognition that these are really really important how would you how would they integrate the two well so that's sort of the way the FLA approached it was mm. they kind of created a guidebook, and I think ETI did this as well, mm. and Clean Clothes Campaign, mm. where they said, well, what are good practices mm. around um, sourcing? So around one group. was don't, 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 don't change your order so quickly. Yeah, long-term relationships long relationship with a fewer number you of... You know, think about wages when you're, when you're setting prices. Um, and one part of that was actually reward factories, suppliers that, that improve in compliance mm -hmm. and use compliance, uh, use sourcing as an incentive to bring compliance up. So they had set these standards. 
but they had no idea how to actually evaluate the firms mm. that the multi-stakeholder mm. organizations mm. Um, certify mm. as being compliant with mm. these standards. Mm. So um, the FLA actually came to us and said, well, how could we do this? How could we understand whether or not a firm is behaving in this way? Um, we'll put you in touch with one of our members who will open up and let you guys look and try to analyze whether or not this firm is aligning sourcing and, and compliance and how might we might know what the answer to that is. Um, so this firm stepped forward. So the way this project worked then is, um, so we had this general question about, well, how is sourcing aligning with mm. compliance? And Greg had mm. written this paper called Does Compliance Pay? That Great showed paper. on average that that that, that factories that came into compliance got just a little bit, 4% more orders in the yeah. last year. Um, uh, and, but there were some limits as to what he could see in that, in those data. So we got them to give us all of their uh, the corrective action plans that they created. So they do a factory audit and they make up a, a list of all the factory's violations, too many overtime hours, this health and safety violation, this and that. And then they track um, over time how that was resolved and they track their communications with the factory. So we sent them an email on March whatever saying, you know, did you change your labor contracts to make them align with the law? And, and then a week later, they'd say, here's a copy of our new labor contract. And then a week later, we'd say, no, that's not really alignment. Um, so we got those Excel spreadsheets. They yeah. were in, there were hundreds of them. Um, and then we had to make those into a form that was actually analyzable. And then we got, um, every purchase order that they cut to their factories. So, you know, we ordered this many jackets of this type on this day to be delivered at this time, at this price, and so on. So what we needed to do was sort of let those two different data sets talk mm -hmm. to one another. Um, so we were on the phone with them a lot to understand their data, because you get these data sets and yeah, you don't understand goodness. them. So wow. it requires actually a lot of time from the companies to be willing to answer these questions of like, so what is this field that says like, you know, BUI, <laughs> mean? you know, like you're going through people's Excel documents. So they went through my documents, yeah, it would be a mess too, sure, right? Sure. Um, so they opened all this up um, and we started uh, putting it together. And um, what we noticed was, um, two things sort of struck us. Um, one was that while it seemed like, you know, Greg had found this positive result in his Does Compliance Pay yeah, paper, yeah. in this particular company, they were rewarding non-compliance. Um, or at least we're sure they weren't rewarding compliance. Mm, mm. So when we looked at the relationship between orders and compliance, we found that when compliance went down, orders went up in the following season, which kind of was... Um, <laughs> Uh, an unfortunate finding in a way. Did the, did, the, did the Active not know this? They did not know this. How did uh, they not know that? I mean, is, is that? I mean, I appreciate you say the data set is complex, but surely, was there no cross-communication? Like, is decoupling really that serious within a company? So what's interesting is in this case, they had tried to create that cross-communication, yeah. um, and it, it, it doesn't seem like they, ha they hadn't pulled it off yet. And even um, if they didn't know it in aggregate, wouldn't an individual CSR officer notice what was happening to one company they'd looked at? Like, so I think one thing... Uh, like you might not know the trend, but you might notice... 
So I think what happens in some of these companies yeah. is that the CSR folks become siloed. Yeah, so sure. how much do they actually know exactly mm. what orders are being mm. placed, how mm. orders are being placed, mm. and um, how, many, how much time do they spend talking yeah. to the sourcing people? Um, it's, it's hard, uh, mm. and, and they've got a lot to do. And mm. what, what wind up happening in this company was when we talked to the sourcing people, mm. they would say, oh, well, we have this great CSR team. Mm. They're making sure all the factories we're working with are okay. Therefore, I kind of... Do if, my they, own if thing. there's no problem, I just do my own thing, mm. right? So uh, that's how they were mm. functioning, uh, mm. and that was preventing them from sort of doing this alignment. But what we found that was there were two things that sort of complicate the story yeah. a little bit that were interesting. One was we found that when the factories had a lot of violations or really serious violations, the serious violation, they would eventually move out. Yeah, and they would try to get the factory to correct it, but if they couldn't, they would move out. So basically. Um, What's interesting about that is if we think that 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 brands are only interested in low prices and that low that factories are able to give low prices by violating labor laws, um, the brand shouldn't be moving out of these. <laughs> they should be putting more orders into mm. these factories. So what we found is basically two two hands were working in opposite directions yes. from one another um, within the same organization. Mm. And it made sense once we started learning about these dynamics because the only time that sourcing and compliance would talk to one another was when there was a real serious issue. A red flag. A red flag. Mm. Then they would start talking and then they would sort of work on other, other solutions. And it also made sense because of this firm was, is rather small, they had difficulty um, shifting order volumes in sort of a, 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 a nuanced way. So we tend to think about firms as having lots of different factories that can all make the same things and moving around based mm. on price. This buyer had basically one or two suppliers for each product. And because of that, they weren't really pushing around on price, mm. but they couldn't move it around on other things as well. Mm. One thing that surprised me, at least, and mm. we found this now in different sets of data that we've mm. looked mm. at, mm. is that more compliant factories were not more expensive factories. And oh, as factories get more compliant, they don't get more expensive. Um, now, this is the third data set that we found this in. One is, was in Greg's does, does Compliance Pay study, in this active study, and in a new paper we're working on, we're finding the same things. So at least within the supply chains themselves, there isn't this strict trade-off between price and compliance. So but what's interesting from, the, from an organizational point of view is that um, trying to get sourcing and all compliance to align at least within a company and at least compliance the way companies are measuring it uh, doesn't require the sourcing managers to go to more expensive factories that's kind of a big deal yeah, that's huge, right yeah. um, and they weren't so we weren't able to figure out in these data why they were giving more volume to uh, factories that were getting mm. worse we had no clear answer mm. to that so we could tell you that they weren't rewarding compliance mm. but we don't have a really strong idea of why and we need to figure that out because the way you led this off is that mm. brands are moving this production and 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 putting all this downward pressure mm. on labor mm. standards um, um which which i believe is happening um but we we have to know how to fix it we've got to change that behavior and we've got to know internally mm. what's going to resist or enable that shift and what do you right? think brands could do differently like speaking to i mean what do you advise active now well, um, so I think that there's a lot of things that brands can do differently. And, and one thing that Greg and I are working on mm. another paper of a company that, um, that at least the data so far suggests that went from a situation where they look like active to a situation where they were actually rewarding compliance. Mm -hmm. um, and of the many interesting things that they did, um, 
One was that they made the sorting staff take ownership over the goals of reducing uh, the, mo the least compliant factories in their supply chain, and they put it into their performance criteria and their reporting and didn't have it siloed out in CSR. But why did they do that? That I don't have mm. a complete answer mm. to just yet. Mm. Um, so I was thinking more about the mechanics of the how yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than the why. And, and partly, I think the questions of the how are, are important because I think we tend to... Oh, no, they're both. They're both um, absolutely... Yeah. No, no, yeah, I'm totally with necessary. you. I'm totally so with in, you. In, so far, we've been thinking more mm. about the how than the yeah, why. No, I, um, yeah, I guess my... the how has been harder than I anticipated. Yes, I think this is really important in recognizing that brands have constraints and we need to work out of the companies that would like to do better, how they might do that. And then I think there's a further political economy question of how do you incentivize more firms to... Yes organize things so that the sourcing people take out. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So, so, so one question is, yeah. yeah, so one question is how do we make sure that, that, that brands have the political pressure on mm. them so that they um, can give, they can make those decisions and see it in their interest to try to implement these programs. Mm. And the other is to actually figure out if they're going to implement these programs, how they're going to do this. I mean, and I think that requires getting a sort of uh, a thicker idea of what's happening with sourcing. Yes. So, you know, I went into this understanding that brands could move um, uh, production for pennies uh, around the world. Yeah, right? footloose international companies. Footloose international right. companies, right? Um, and when you start looking at the supply chains, at least for the bigger, more sophisticated companies, mm. it actually doesn't look like that. If mm. you look at changes in prices, they don't predict who gets more orders, mm. which really surprised me. There's a lot more inertia. Mm. There's also this big global shift in supply chains happening underneath all of this right. that we don't know the implications of. So the big firms out there, the Nikes, the H&Ms, yeah. mm. they've gone from having very big supply chains to shrinking dramatically. Yeah, Nike has really changed, right? With lots of longer term uh, relationships and with a shorter number. With a, a, smaller, with a smaller number yeah. of much bigger suppliers. And that's what people were always pushing them to do, right? Isn't it? Yes. In Wasn't some that ways, that they were encouraged not to have like hundreds of suppliers that they didn't know about? Yes, that's what they were encouraged to do. What's interesting is, at least that I know of, I don't know if they did it for uh, CSR reasons. I actually don't oh, think really? they did. I think they did because that was a more efficient model right. <laughs> of, of, of production. And then the question is, will this more efficient model right. actually then create these different dynamics that then change this game in some sort of... There's this big global shift. I think it's actually because of the way um, the rise of these large Asian firms mm -hmm. that have different capabilities, the end of the MFA, mm -hmm. that, you know, the MFA pushed companies to produce all over the world to get quota. Yes. Now they're not doing that in oh, the same way. Right? right. So there's a whole bunch of factors that all kind of, uh, that shifted the way global supply chains are structured generally that have implications for labor that we don't totally understand yet. Um, one of the implications for labor is this alignment of sourcing and compliance, but there's a ton of other implications for labor. Mm -hmm. um, what happens when, you know, what happens to these big firms, how do they behave, what does that mean, does that make it more difficult for labor to organize because they have more power, does it make it easier because they have these different targets, um, are they, is, is labor, is it more bureaucratized, is that, could that be a good thing mm -hmm. for labor relations, I, I, I don't think we really know the answer of this, uh, of the implications of this big shift, so, but we know it's happening. Going back to your earlier point, you were saying that it could be a progressive move if sourcing has organizationally to take greater responsibility. Some of the compliance elements, right? Yeah. And then and then the other part of it, at least this this new paper that we're working mm -hmm. on, they did things like they set up monthly meetings between 
compliance and sourcing, oh, where they would go through the list of all the factories, oh, discuss the plan, and that they would have sourcing put pressure on the factories to improve their, their working conditions, not just compliance. And as one compliance officer put it to me the other week when I was doing field yeah. work and talking with yeah. people from this company, um, one word from sourcing is worth more than a hundred words from the compliance staff right. because sourcing are the people who control the, 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 the purchasing mm. and at least from this person's point of view that that was crucial to, uh, to making these systems work marginally better. Now, that doesn't mean we throw out all the capacity building mm, and all the mm. pedagogical aspects of, mm. of regulating. It just means that we couple that with what's happening in sourcing. So the company hopefully. that you're looking at in the new paper, is that a different size company with yes. a different kind of supply chains? Because I was just thinking to your yes. earlier finding was saying that the small company like Active struggled to increase volumes. And I'm wondering whether your new finding would actually help Active because if it was applying pressure where you can't, where you don't actually have that wiggle room because the factories are pretty small. Yeah. It may not, right? right so in this okay. case, this is a this this new paper's on a very big company right, um, okay. that that has a little bit more flexibility yes. to move things around, yes. um, and and active might have some constraints that make this mm. very mm. difficult mm. to do. And then we need to recognize that um, in those companies that have less flexible supply chains than we thought. Um, what does that imply for uh, how we're going to be able to al align? the behavior of multinationals with the outcomes that we want in labor standards. Mm. We always thought that flexibility was driving things down. Mm. But the lack of flexibility might prevent us from pulling things up. And that just sort of is a surprising finding yeah, no, from my point of view. Um, so, and then all of this is though, I should say, it's like one small piece of a much bigger puzzle, right? And I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the role of state regulation, the role of unions, and the role of all this. and and how um, this piece fits, the sourcing piece fits mm -hmm. into all of that, I, I don't have a good answer to, mm -hmm. but I think we need to start thinking about it in a more uh, nuanced way, right? So if, we, if we're going to then regulate companies' supply chains, mm -hmm. we're going to have stronger regulations like mm -hmm. around forced labor or mm -hmm. something like that, then we have to think about how the companies are, are going to actually implement those internally. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's um, no point hammering someone if they don't have the capacity or know how to actually deal with it. Yeah, and then, so, and I think they can get the capacity, mm -hmm. but we have to sort of think about what that's yeah. going to mean and how, and how yeah. we're going to get there. Um, can I have a, qu a question though to just spin this a little? So much of this has been predicated on the idea that factory audits give us valuable, reliable, useful information. And I think maybe it's just worth flagging here, a debate that you're well aware of, is that one, factory managers might you know, prepare for these inspections, intimidate workers, you know, just make things seem nice mm -hmm. on one day. And even if they improve some of the occupational and safety elements, uh, we still have an issue of really low wages and many of these brands specifically source from countries that are repressing organized labor and I think that was a finding from Does Compliance Pay. They found that in a lot of the factories it was all located in authoritarian countries and if you're in an authoritarian country workers will find it very difficult to organize or co-enforce labor standards, right? That's right. So, so I think there's a couple of things embedded in that mm. question. I, so the first is, what do we make of audits? Mm. Um, and I think that there's 
a couple of helpful things to say. One is yes, audits are biased. Mm. Uh, I think Mark Anner's great work on FOA yeah. is, is clear here. Um, a formative experience for me in grad school was following around auditors and watching what they did and then spending a few weeks in the city where the factories were and talking with union leaders and others and learning all of the things that the auditors missed and all the biases they have. Completely agree that they're, they're biased and they're they, they, they don't capture everything. Um, and we know that they're biased around particular types of issues, mm. issues that you need workers to tell you about, yes. um, freedom of association, sexual harassment, all kinds of very important issues mm. are not going to be ca captured. Yeah. Documentary issues, things that you can see <coughs> are going to be easier for people to, mm. to mm. orders to keep up. Um, it's important to note though that having followed around labor inspectors mm. for mm. government regulation as well, mm. They too have all kinds of biases and all kinds of so regulation is just imperfect. Um, so uh, I think it's sort of easy to criticize audits mm. and then with this idea of an ideal. Uh, yes. But that ideal of state regulation kind of isn't there either, yes. even in the best of circumstances. Yeah, sure. And that's why empowering workers is so important, because you can't just depend on inspections or audits or anything else. Workers have to have the power to speak up for their Can own. Can you tell the uh, listener a little bit more about co-enforcement? Can we segue to that, please? <laughs> so Matt has a wonderful book about co-enforcement in Argentina. I just want to cover three papers all in one book. So, so, I mean, that, that project, I think that there's a, well, one one saying on the garment industry mm -hmm. at least in that project um, one of the cases that i looked at is uh, is our small garment factories in buenos aires mm. um and that produce for the local market so they're not really subject to this kind of transnational stuff that we've been talking about today they're really it's local it was local politics um and um the, when i did this research it was about a about a decade ago um there had been a bunch of scandals because they were mostly migrant workers, mostly Bolivian nationals who were working in these small tajeres, mm. um, they're called, uh, workshops that were, uh, and one had burned down mm. and there were fires. Mm. It's a familiar story. Mm -hmm. um, and then out of that, what happened was that the state, there was a pressure on the state to enforce. Mm -hmm. um, but finding small workshops in apartment buildings in Buenos Aires is really hard. Um, and actually doing that enforcement isn't so easy. But there was a social organization that actually had started off as a soup kitchen that had a, was plugged into the network of, of workers, um, of a lot of Bolivian migrants, um, and that actually sent people door to door looking for work that then collected the addresses of these um, illegal horrible sweatshops mm. and then pass that information back to the state and then the state went in and was able to enforce and you got this interaction between state and society that enabled enforcement kind of um, from the bottom up in this case but but also supported from the top down because there was a government that was interested in enforcement at the time um, that, that put a lot of pressure mm. on these uh, on these factories to try to get them to improve working conditions so that was a case where you had uh, the labor organization, in this case it wasn't a union, um, the union had its own problems mm. and wasn't asking for mm. enforcement, although it should have been, um, putting pressure from the bottom up. Um, and that's how you got the information you needed to regulate, and that's how you got the actual political pressure that you needed to regulate and, and had some marginal improvements. Uh, then there was a political change, and those enforcement went away. So I have a question. I wonder if sometimes we celebrate these marginal wins and uh, these are really small marginal wins that sometimes are being celebrated like and they're just at the really bottom level and sometimes they're not even taking into account poverty wages and overtime is 
no one ever fixes over time, right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we're getting building safety pretty much, you know, improving. But all this private regulation stuff, and, and I, I went to a conference last year and everyone was, everyone was doing these, these studies, really fascinating, important studies on looking at different kinds of private regulation and looking at how private regulation can be improved and all these things. And when I was reading the papers, looking at the results, I was like, these are still really, really bad, like really bad. And I wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's an issue about this still clinging to this model of private regulation that even even researchers, not saying that we have political power as researchers, but somehow legitimizing it as a status quo way of global governance. So, know. so I I think that that's, I share your concern, um, and in part, I mean. I, in grad school, I did my first work on this in private regulation, and then I chose for my dissertation not to look at private regulation because <laughs> I thought that you know this model's not going to work. And I spent years studying state regulation, and I thought, oh well, <laughs> we have some problems here as oh, well. Right, um, yeah. But 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 so I guess I would separate out analytically mm. into two different yeah. um, arenas. Yes. So one is what's happening in the producing countries. Mm. Um, so. Uh, I, one of my first times studying this, I was in the Dominican mm. Republic and mm. I was interviewing local union leaders mm. and local labor inspectors mm. about private regulation, what they mm. thought of it. Mm. And what was fascinating is no one had ever heard of it, right? They had a vague sense that buyers come in and check things, yeah. but it was not affecting their politics of, of the people who were fighting mm. to improve labor mm. rights in the Dominican mm. Republic in any real way. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Indonesia and I worked on this paper on better work and I had actually lots of similar conversations. Labor politics in Indonesia are fascinating and com complicated and really important. And, you know, what happened with private regulation is not really shifting that in any meaningful way. Um, I just uh, want to flag to the listener, this is a really great paper book viewers where you find that where organized labor is stronger, then we have stronger enforcement in Indonesia. Yeah. So but the hope in that paper was in some ways that, that better work would be sort of uh, spilling out into the mm. Indonesian mm. institutions mm. Um, and you know at the, at the margins mm. we find things but not this kind of massive spilling out that could distract mm. those uh, organizers who are fighting for better working mm. rights because they think that you know this is all being taken care mm. of by buyers mm. now all of that said, I don't know, I haven't studied things in Cambodia or Bangladesh, mm -hmm. places where there's a lot more salience to these mm -hmm. issues. And there, in those exceptional countries, mm -hmm. there could be these mm -hmm. kinds of dynamics. Mm -hmm. But I think in the larger con uh, countries where the industries that are are most subject to this kind of supply chain regulation are the most, uh, have the, the ha have sort of a, a smaller footprint, it's, mm -hmm. it's less, less important. Now that's one part. The other part is what happens in, in in the buying countries, mm. in the importing countries, mm. and what this means for things like TPP mm. or you know uh, mm. the politics of trade mm. and regulation mm. in generally, and there I don't think we have a good answer mm, yet. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, um, so I think we need to do more research to understand: mm. Do you have this displacement on on this side, and mm. therefore uh, is the sort of the the marginal benefits of private regulation undermining support for some bigger structural mm. change. I, I don't know what the answer to that mm. is. Sometimes I think it could be, sometimes I think, mm. uh, I don't know. No, I totally see your big. point. That it, and, it, and I find it so interesting that, 
in your in your work you've looked at so many different things and you're like ah well that isn't working so let me move to you know cooperate with the bias okay now let me work out that you know the, that this but I really appreciate that because it's a sense of exploring experimenting and then shifting and then looking for new possible avenues yeah so I think but then the other part is also we don't it's really hard to understand the counterfactual I mean mm. I don't know what your experience is mm. but when 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 I was in Indonesia, for example, mm. and you go to the factory, yes. and you know that's that's part of better work, mm. and it's got all kinds of problems, and it's yeah. clear that it's got all kinds of problems. Mm. The hours are too low, the pay, mm. the wages, mm. the, the too long, the wages yeah. are too yeah. low. Uh, you know, the manager tells you openly that they've bribed the labor inspector and created a yellow union. You know, like, these are really problems, <laughs> yeah. right? But then you go outside of that and you look at for the sure. way uh, working conditions are for small shops that are, that are going to the, to the domestic market mm. or, or where, where buyers aren't paying attention. You think, wow. So I don't know how effective private regulation is, but I could say it's pretty clear that these working conditions are better. And I think that if buyers stopped paying attention at all, that that might be a bad thing. I'm right? totally with you. And this is, yes. Yeah, so then how do we handle the politics mm. where we kind of, where that becomes a minimum expectation that buyers are into, mm. doing this, but it's not celebrated in a way that then distracts us from other more structural mm. changes. And you know, what, what those politics look like, I don't, I don't really know the answer to. I am totally with you, and I think this is uh, Catherine Sikind makes this new po uh, point in her new book, A Bias, Evidence for Hope, and she highlights when people have been critical of like human rights, it's like, yeah, but what's your counterfactual? Yeah. You're saying, oh, it's all so terrible, well, where's this magical utopia that you'd like to happen instead? And I think my magical utopia is this, Matt, that my concern is that if so many people become so invested in marginal improvements to private regulation, then we, as you say, don't look for alternatives. And it, and it, it curbs our radicalism, whereas I, I, I would be more radical. But I totally, I totally heed your message, and I think it's such an important point that recognizing that some firms are reputation conscious, would like to make improvements, and thinking about how academics can partner with them to help them understand things that they didn't even realize. But I agree, and I think the, the real difficult question is how do we put together the, the analyses um, of, you know, of taking domestic politics seriously mm. in the country, yes. where all production is taking places, taking the international arena seriously, mm. but also taking the, the, the global supply chain seriously and not complexity explode so much that we kind of can't make sense of it all. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you.